So hi everybody, can you hear me okay? Does that sound all right? Oh, hello, I'm Sharon. I'm a grateful sober member of Alcoholics Anonymous. Um, grateful to be sober today. Grateful to have been able to been asked to be of service today. It's an incredible way of life. I've been a member of Alcoholics Anonymous since the 1st of September 2000, and I got sober on my first day coming to this fellowship. You told me I need never, ever drink again. And you said the way we do that is we don't take one drink one day at a time. And, um, and I used to think it was the eighth drink or the twelfth drink that sent me over the edge. And towards the end of my drinking, I became unreliable, erratic, unpredictable, undependable, all the uns. You never knew how you would find me. I never knew how you would find me. And um, when people describe my personality as changing from Jekyll to Hyde, Dr. Jekyll to Mr. Hyde or Mr. Hyde to Dr. Jekyll, whatever the analogy was, I didn't really understand what they were saying, but I did know something was different about the way I drank compared to my peers. And, um, and uh, as soon as I came to AA, I wasn't, um, I, I was done by the time I got here, you know, and that was 22 years ago. I came to my first meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous and I knew I was in the right place. I had tried to control my drinking. I tried to control, you know, taking control of my drinking before I got to AA. And, um, and so I really, I've had some experience with relapse, but before I got here, if you know what I mean, I tried to define my own sobriety. I, I tried to do all of that sort of controlling that some of you may identify with where I, um, you know, I would swear off the grain. So I'd have no, you know, grain spirits. I'd only have um, grape spirits uh, or fruit spirits or just drink wine or just have a, uh, you know, just have a, I very seldom had lager. It just didn't do it for me. Although I did love Guinness. I hope you don't mind me mentioning specific types of drinks, but um, yeah, I did all the different, the, the, the different combinations, the different uh, ways I thought I could control my drinking. I thought if I could just, just don't have any of that, um, wacky backy you know that don't agree to smoke any of that the wild stuff you know once you've had a few glasses of wine that's the worst thing you can do I thought if I just avoid um smoking the wild stuff with a drink maybe that would that would help me to control it better and uh, and of course that that didn't work and then I thought I know what I'll do I don't know if any of you uh, I thought it was a really good idea somebody uh, suggested I try some you know white Colombian marching powder and they said oh you know if you try some of this you'll be able to you know keep going all night long and you'll feel great and you can drink as much as you like and not have the consequences well that was me off you know that was a that was a Ter a, a terrible idea I didn't know it at the time and it absolutely worked in the beginning 
but uh, I didn't. That didn't stop me from. That didn't stop the horrendous consequences of my drinking. So I was a blackout drinker, um, just for you know for identification purposes. I, if the, there may be people on here that are here for the first time or new, I didn't know what it meant when people talked about blackouts. All I knew is there was big chunks of time where I had no memory of what I did, what I said how I got home, where I parked my car, and I'd come to in places I didn't recognize with people I didn't know, people I hadn't gone out with the night before, you know, and that was frightening, that became frightening. There was a time in the beginning in my early, sort of early 20s where I hung out with people who did the same thing. And so, and, uh, and we all, we all had a great laugh, the less you could remember, the better time you'd had, you know, that kind of thing. And, uh, you know, and the lost handbags and the, and the locking, losing keys and phones and, and wallets and, you know, just the, the chaos of it. But again, it was all in the spirit of having a party. It was all, it was all just a lot of fun. And, uh, you know, um, and I thought I could handle it. I used to pride myself on how much I could drink and not get sort of fall down drunk. And uh, and uh, when I finally fell down, I mean, when I finally came crashing in these rooms, desperate and broken, um, there were still people who knew me who when they when I told them that I had stopped drinking and I was in AA and that I identified as an alcoholic, they said, you're not an alcoholic. You know, there were certain people and certain places where for a little while I could remain, I could, I could maintain some sort of veneer of some sort of veneer of pretense where I it looked as if I was managing, but actually you didn't see the chaos. And I left the, the polite dinner parties early because I couldn't bear having to drink at the pace that these people were drinking at. Or it would start out at a clinky drinks cocktail do with, uh, with my hair up a bit like tonight. <laughs> And as soon as uh, the party started, as soon as I had a drink, you know, I was already looking to see where where the next one was and where I was was boring and you were boring because nobody was ha having, you know, nobody was caning it as fast as I needed you to. So I would leave and I would go go somewhere else, you know, where I thought I'd get a, I'd have a better time. I was constantly on the move. And uh, for people who loved me and people who cared about me and people who wanted to spend time with me, it was very frustrating for them because you couldn't. You couldn't, um, you just didn't know where I, you just didn't know whether I would spend more than half an hour with you or whether I'd tell you I loved you one minute and then punch you the next. I mean, I was just an absolute liability, just chaos towards the end. And uh, the, the poor, you know, poor boyfriends that I had at the time, I mean, they were just so confused and baffled, you know, just had no idea, you know, how they could, you know, how they could try and get me to commit, get me to be a girlfriend, get me to be a home builder get me to be a potential wife or partner long term I was just I was off you know and I'd make all kinds of promises and I'd mean well and I'd you know I tried to do what you know I had a fantasy in my mind of how I thought my life would turn out and how I thought it would look to have a you know to have have a family and to sort of settle down and, and have some sort of a normal life but it was it was just impossible because of my alcohol addiction. And I didn't know that I was, you know, that I was, um, 
that I had this illness called alcoholism. I didn't know that I was, you know, critically allergic to alcohol, that once in my system, it just rendered me incapable of, of controlling the quantities I drank. And so despite all my best efforts, the gym routines and the retreats and the, you know, the, the, the different sort of health kicks I went on, I don't know, the juicing and then the running and then the, the aerobics and then the, um, you know, the, just the, the fierce control. And it was always sort of white knuckling, you know, this time it's gonna be different, this time I'm gonna, I'm gonna abstain, you know, I do that going on the wagon thing. And um, and I and I'd have swapped one addiction for another somewhere along the line, and eventually, you know, I'd have to reward myself with a drink. And of course, the drinks got closer and closer together, and more. You know, in those periods where I thought I was controlling it, which would really only be for a nanosecond, um, it would be it would be you know replaced with it. What what I dressed up as a celebration. It's time to celebrate. You've done so well. You've been so you know you've teetotaled for you know a couple of weeks and you've you've sort of cleaned up. I used to recover quite quickly physically. You know I used to, but the, the hangovers got more and more and more unmanageable. And I was turning up for work less. And I was letting people down. And I was stealing money to to pay for my habit and um and well I was borrowing money <laughs> under the guise of you know a credit card application with no intention of paying it back you know, I was just completely just like a tornado it talks about it in the book anyway um so the theme for this evening's share I chose was that there's a wonderful piece in the big book which it talks about our design for living and um, and I came to AA uh, broken. I'd lost everything. I was just short of my 32nd birthday. So you can work out how old I am. So one thing that AA has not um, worked is it hasn't prevented me from getting older. So, you know, I came here. I'm 22 years older than I was when I got here. And that's been a big no matter what, having to just accept the fact that biology is taking hold and, you know, I'm getting older. But I came here and you told me that I need never take a drink again, that there was a we have a way of living. We have a program of recovery, which was talked about in the chapter, how it works. Uh, we have a design for living that works under all conditions. Um, and I was all ears because by then I was just about home, street homeless. If it wasn't for the for the for the kindness and the and the the well, it was pity, really. Uh, one of my remaining girlfriends who who I had let down over and over and over again, she had a. Um, she was selling a little studio bedsit in um, in London, in England, and uh, so it was empty. It was there was no electricity, and uh, and there was just a sort of mattress on the floor. And and she and she said you can you can crash there um, until you get yourself sorted out. So that's kind of where I was at, and and just just you know, the night before I'd been sort of last chance saloon having i don't know drawn the last 20 or 30 you know i had 30 or 40 pounds left in my bank account which which was on in the overdraft so it was what was remaining of an already huge overdraft so chaos just chaos drawing the last my last bit of cash 
going to a yet another bar in the center of London in Soho, sitting at a bar stool. I'd been on a five day bender and it was after my brother's wedding. So I was in the same outfit I'd gone to the wedding in, what was left of the outfit. I looked nothing like I'd looked five days earlier. And I'd been on this horrendous, oh, just horrendous sort of seeking, searching. The alcohol had stopped working by then, sort of coming in and out of blackout. So I said I wasn't sure what blackout meant when I first got here, but now I know because you described it to me and we all have similar experiences in, in Alcoholics Anonymous. And I just wanted to say, if, 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 if while you're listening to my story, you're thinking, God, I don't identify with anything this woman is saying, don't let that put you off. It was I was told when I first came here, just keep going to meetings. And eventually, if you're one of us, <laughs> if you're an alcoholic of my type, you will eventually hear your story. And so, um, and so, yeah, what was I saying? So I, so I fell into these rooms, almost street homeless, no job, thousands of pounds in debt. You know, minutes before coming here, I was sat on that bar stool in that Sado bar waiting for god knows what some sort of knight in shining armor to come sweeping in and sweeping me off into the sunset you know uh, uh, rescuing me and and i was telling whoever would listen my insane ideas about about uh, you know an international business consortium that i was going to start and and uh, I was as mad as a brush. I mean, I, I, you, I was unemployable by then. I, I, uh, I couldn't, I couldn't, I didn't realize how sick I was and how broken I was until I came into AA, you know, and stopped drinking. And um, so, yeah, so I, it was the, you know, they say the darkest hour is before the dawn. I mean, I qualified for this fellowship at the age of 17 easily. I mean, I was, I was drinking most days, blacking out, ending up in all sorts of horrendous situations and scrapes, laughing it off, promising I, you know, never gonna do that again and then doing it again. And I didn't realize that that's our definition of insanity, repeating the same behavior over and over again, expecting a different result. Oh my goodness. So step two, where it says we came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. I just remember when I walked into these rooms and I saw those steps on the wall, there was nothing about what I read there that frightened me. If anything, I was just relieved that I could finally admit my powerlessness over alcohol. I could finally tell you the truth about just how chaotic and just how unmanageable my life had become, despite my best intentions. And I'm fiercely determined. You know, I'm a, I'm a childhood trauma survivor. I shouldn't really be alive. I, you know, I managed to get myself an education. God knows how, you know, I blagged my way through most things. You know, I managed to sort of survive my, my the, the war zone of my childhood. And, you know, and I, and I was driven by that, that sort of, I'll show them, you know, I'm going to show them, I'm going to, I'm going to try, I'm going to make, I'm going to survive. I'm a survivor. And I did, you know, I was able to, to work and travel and and do wonderful things, but all under the rocket fuel of alcohol and all doing things that I wanted you to esteem me for. You know, I didn't have a clue about myself. I didn't have a clue about where I began and ended, where you began and ended. Didn't have a clue about what I really loved or what I'd lost all sense of direction, all sense of self. I just was a, 
a sort of a multitude of personalities and I had a multitude of different friends and I was terrified you'd all meet each other one day and and compare notes and I'd forgotten who I'd said what to about what you know all that chaos and I was just you know terrified um, deeply disturbed despairing you know frightened young woman and people in AA just welcomed me in they said everything is going to be okay as long as you don't take one drink one day at a time it's the first drink that gets you drunk and I get that I said that right at the beginning I remember thinking how can it be the first I'm you know I'm a volume drinker and of course, I didn't understand the allergy that it describes in our book, Alcoholics Anonymous. For anybody who's new, just grab that book and go through it with another member. That's the magic of how this program works, is one alcoholic helping another. I couldn't go away and read that book and get sober by myself. I just, you know, that's not how this program works. So um, it describes, in the doctor's opinion, the exact nature of my malady. And what makes me different to sort of heavy drinkers is this is this allergic reaction. So my body metabolizes alcohol in a certain way that sets up this phenomenon of craving, as described in the book Alcoholics Anonymous. And for me, it's a, the, the phenomenon of craving is the allergic reaction. And, and that means I, I cannot I cannot stop. I don't have an off button. So once I start... Oblivion is the only thing that's going to stop me. Oblivion and, and, pa and passing out, blacking out and passing out is the only thing that stopped stop me. Um, and when I learned about that part of the illness, the physical allergy, I was so relieved. It was like, oh, my God, now I understand how all of my desperate attempts to stop by myself just failed dismally over and over again. And like I said, I'd have periods of white knuckle control where I'd replaced one addiction for another. Neither I was an exercise bulimic. I was an insane. I took insane amounts of, um, you know, thermogenics, which are sort of like, you know, I, I would eat handfuls of guarana and ginseng. I don't know if any of you identify. I mean, I would use all anything, speed, anything to, to you know, stop drinking and. Um, and, uh, and none of it worked. Then you described there was this, this is a three part illness. So not only do I suffer with a physical allergy to alcohol, I also have what you described as a mental obsession. A mental obsession that wants to tell me that I, there's nothing wrong and that I can do it differently this time. And, um, and thankfully, as a result of working and, and applying this design for living, which I'll tell you a little bit about in the next few minutes, um, you know, I have arrested the mental obsession and, and I have also treated the third part of our illness, which is what you describe as a spiritual malady, which essentially, which I hear other members of AA talk about, which is, which is that terrible sense of needing to fill an unfillable hole. And of course, that hole is now filled. It's no longer empty. And it's filled with the light of a power greater than myself. It's filled with the incredible, nourishing, loving guidance and protection of members, you know, fellowship of this fellowship. Alcoholics Anonymous is the most incredible thing that's ever happened in, in, in my lifetime. It's the, it's the best thing I've ever done. I owe everything that I have in my life today to Alcoholics Anonymous. And I don't say that lightly. I am, um, I, you know, I, I'll tell you about the gifts of recovery as, as I, as I um, 
just share with you this journey into recovery, which has been unbelievable. If you'd said to me what I would be doing and, and how I would be feeling and the things that I would be enjoying today, if you describe this life that I'm living today to me when I was first around, I'd never have believed you because it's so different. I'm so different. I'm so, my life is so different to the one that I thought, you know, the one that I thought that I, I wanted for myself. And what's so different about it is that AA, as a result of working a 12-step program with a sponsor, being a, a, a central, in the middle of the bed member of AA, even now, it, it, my, it, AA is as important and is as central in my life today as it was the day I got here. You know, I'm not detoxing. I'm not clucking for a drink. I'm not sitting around wishing I could have a drink. I'm not watching people drinking, thinking, poor me, I can't join in. It's just not. I have such a, an incredible way of life because I don't drink. And I've had so much experience of the joy and the freedom and the dignity and the self-respect and a sense of self, you know, self-worth that I've got from being a, a member here is so much more attractive and so much more beautiful um, with soul and with, with heart and with real meaning and depth. There's so much more on offer here than I was getting in those sort of, you know, the, the what I thought were the glitzy, trendy cocktail party environment where you had a drink. It was the social elixir and everybody was, you know, skipping around having a fabulous time. That wasn't how I drank. I never drank like that. I never. I always wanted more than you. And I wanted to get out of your company as quickly as possible so that I could go and drink and use properly. And so there was never, it was a nanosecond of what looked like a, a social life. But in fact, all I wanted to do was, was get off my head. And I don't today, I don't want to do that because being sober and being awake and, and having the tools of this way of life is so much more attractive to me. It's like, it's the better deal. It's, the, it's just the better deal for an alcoholic of my type. And so I got here and I was desperate and I said, I wanted you to help me. And I was willing. And they say no true alcoholic will give themselves to this way of life until they've reached that jumping off place. And I really had reached that jumping off place. I was at the end. I, I was at the end. I, I really was. And, uh, and, uh, and I was ready. I was just ready. I wasn't still debating whether I was or wasn't alcoholic. You know, I walked in these rooms. I heard you qualify. I read the steps on the wall and I just knew I was in the right place. I felt at home straight away. I was terrified. I shook and I sweated and I sh and I was terrified. I was terrified of um, uh, that somebody might recognize me. I mean, how bonkers is that? You know, what if somebody knows me? Well, you know, we're there for the same reason. And in fact, I did, I have, and in the years I've been in AA and I've traveled around the world and I've seen and met people who I knew when I was out in the madness and they were, they were here before me and I didn't know they were already members. And they said, God, we're so happy you're here, Sharon. We, we didn't think, we didn't think, you know, we were worried you wouldn't make it. So, um, Please help me, I said, what do I need to do? Just tell me what I need to do. And this is where they start to describe our design for living. 
And, um, and I was told very pragmatically, very black and white. You know, I luckily I fell in with a crowd in AA were not wishy-washy suggestions. I fell in with a crowd and it, and it was just right for me. I'm not talking about anybody else's recovery. I'm just sharing what was right for this wriggly, dishonest, uh, always looking for the easy, easier, softer way, terribly disobedient, terribly undisciplined, um, defiant to the core. And I'm still defiant. You know, I can still be defiant, but I was as desperate as the dying are. As they say, there's a little reading again in the 12 and 12, and it talked about the, 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 the drowning man, as desperate as the drowning man is for a life preserver, you know, for a life safety belt. I just wanted you to, I needed that. I want, I grabbed onto the life safety belt and I, and you, and you pulled me to safety. You sort of pulled me in. I came into the meeting and I asked you what I needed, you know, just tell me what to do. And you said, here are the requirements for sobriety. And I was like, oh, here we go. And of course, I'm a perfectionist and a fierce control freak as well. So <laughs> I remember, I, you know, notebook and pen. And my first AA sponsor said, you want to write this stuff down. She said, I want you to get on your knees in the morning and pray for a sober day. No problem. The amount of praying I had done in the amount of scrapes I got myself into, I had no, and the fact that I was still alive, I had no trouble with the word God. I had no, I, in fact, I had a guardian angel. There was an only, there was only one reason that I was in an AA meeting and I wasn't dead is, was because I believed I had a guardian angel, a higher power, call it what you like, divine, divine mind, creative intelligence of the universe, you know, spirit of the universe, the sun, nature, the wind, the rain, the, the sea, you know, all of that was my higher power. And um, I was told to get on my knees and pray for a sober day. And I had to write that down. She said, are you writing this down? Right, right. Number one, get on your knees. <laughs> okay, I can do that. Right. Next, I want you to get and she gave me a daily reflections i don't know if any of you know the daily reflections it's a little book of daily reflections it's dated 365 days of the year and you can read a, a reading for each day of the year and it's a little spiritual reading with a little reflection somebody in fellowship has written a little reflection based on either something from the steps or something from our you know from our literature read a read a page from daily reflections then take some quiet time. Like I said, I was as mad as a brush, or I've also been described, I was as mad as a box of frogs, if any of you can imagine what that looks like. And I could not sit still. I was on the Red Bull maintenance program. I don't recommend it. I don't recommend any of those energy drinks. If you're new, if you want to complicate your recovery, I don't have anything against an energy drink, but I, I was as mad as a brush. I couldn't sit still. I was drinking coffee, thousands of cups of coffee a day. And of course, it was better than having a drink so whatever works for you so but I was it didn't it, it didn't, didn't help me to my nervous system to heal as quickly as it could have done without that stuff I mean alcohol is a nervous system stripper so if you've already got some form of you know if you've ever suffered with any kind of um, nervous system disposition nervous system condition pour alcohol on it and you and it was just for me it was just a magnifier it just it just like fuel on on a fire so when I got sober and I put the alcohol down I was a I was a 
I was a me- I was a mess, and so um, I just complicated it with caffeine. And uh, uh, but I stayed sober. I didn't take a drink. But I was told to spend some quiet time after I'd said my prayers, done a reading. My sponsor said, "Send you set your clock, set your timer for for three minutes. Three minutes." You just sit quietly and meditate, meditate. I didn't know what you were talking about. And just just contemplate and reflect on the reading and write down a few things about what what you identified with, with the reading. Just write down a couple of, I mean, I could barely read the preamble by the time I got into AA. I'll tell you, my, my, as I said, my, I should have been in treatment. I really, I should have been in hospital, but I got sober in, in sort of what they called a day treatment program. I wasn't, it wasn't residential. I'd go there in the morning, I'd get acupuncture, I'd get some herbal teas, I'd get some reflexology to have some lovely chats with other people all trying to control their drinking. And then I'd go to AA. I go to AA three, four, five times a day. In London, I got sober in London, in England, and we could go to meetings at least five times a day. Anyway, um, jumped around there a little bit. I haven't had any coffee, I promise. I haven't had any Red Bull. (laughs) But I am at an AA convention with hundreds of people having a fabulous time, and it's very, very invigorating. So I'm, I'm sort of bordering on, you know, a bit of ADHD. So, um, uh, yeah, what was I saying? Oh, the things I was told to do. So these aren't suggestions. These were told I was given these things as requirements for sobriety, and it was described as my design for living. Prayer, reading, quiet time, reflection. And then I had to write a gratitude list. I was living out of a suitcase on the floor of an empty bedsit that had no electricity and was, had a for sale sign outside. Uh, you know, what did I have to be grateful for? I was in thousands of pounds of debt. I thought my life was unsalvageable. Well, not that I really, I had, I had, you know, my alcohol had robbed me of everything. Thousands of pounds in debt, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. What did I have to be grateful for? And she said, well, you could start with the shoes on your feet, the roof over your head, that you're not sleeping on a pavement, that you can run the tap, but you can get yourself something to eat. And she was right. So by charity, and I'm talking AA charity, I was given, you know, a fiver here and taken for lunch there and bought a cup of tea here. The generosity of the people in this room kept me alive. Members of this room took me and helped me sign on. Members of these rooms took me and helped me register with a GP. You know, get me, get me sorted, get me to get me into a clinic to get a complete MOT, you know, all those sort of things. I could never have done that by myself. This fellowship is amazing. So prayer, readings, meditation, reflection gratitude list gratitude list cultivate an attitude of gratitude i was told because if you don't you will be constantly catastrophizing waking up with a negative head always looking at the glass half empty than the glass half full i learned that here i love that saying and I have so I have to deliberately and conscientiously cultivate gratitude. And the wonderful thing is that when I when you do that, they say gratitude, fear cannot live alongside gratitude. So if I'm grateful and I and I I can't be afraid. 
and I love that and I love that because the my my the core of my illness is fear-based and once I'd done my gratitude list I would then have to make a commitment to making three phone calls that day to three other members of the fellowship that was part of my daily routine I was told to ring my sponsor at the same time 7 a.m ring her in the morning i mean i was i was only used to coming to around midday having only come in at 5 6 a.m in the morning coming to around 12 noon and then going straight out drinking again so here i was not drinking not drugging in early recovery as oh my goodness my sleep patterns were all over the place 7 a.m you ring me at 7 a.m she's she had a life she had a home, she had, you know, she had a job, she, 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 you know, and she made time available. She said she'd make herself, am I willing to go to any length to get sober? Yes. Well, here's some time I'm setting aside for you. You ring me at this time and, you know, and I want to hear your plan for the day. What are you doing for, what are you going to do today to stay sober? She wanted to know what meeting I'm going to. She'd want to know what, what um, you know, that I was committing to making those three outreach calls. What service position was I taking up at a meeting? And, you know, home group, get a home group, a meeting that you attend every week at the same time where you get involved. And I thought, because I'm, I did not, I was either drinking, getting over having been drunk, planning to drink again. You take that out of the equation and I had absolutely no idea how to live my life. Relationships, forget it. I could barely look you in the eye, let alone, uh, you know, be interested in you as a person and, and uh, know how to have some sort of a conversation. I was so socially awkward, so painfully, painfully socially awkward. My sponsor handed me a dustpan and a brush and she said, You're, we smoke, we could smoke in meetings when I first came into AA. She said, you go and sweep up the cigarette butts outside. I thought, how dare you? <laughs> and I did. I swept up the cigarette butts. And then she said, sobriety starts in the sink. Get over and wash the cups. Don't say yes when somebody's asking if they need help to put the signs up. Put the signs up. Put the books out. You know, and of course, I wanted to control everything. I wanted it all to be perfect. Everybody was doing it wrong. Don't you know? I know how to do it perfectly. Anyway, and... Uh, so she wanted to hear my plan for the day, which included meetings, which included agreeing to getting involved in service, which included agreeing to having a regular home group. And um, just incredible that I got this design for living right at the beginning. There was no, mm, if you feel like it, maybe you can go to a couple of meetings. No, nope, 90 and 90, bottom line, 90 meetings in 90 days, no arguing. That's if you want to get well, that's what you have to do. And of course, like I said, I, I went to way more than that because I had no other. I had nothing else to do. I was unemployable. I was very, very mentally unwell. I was physically very unwell. I should have been in hospital. But luckily, you know, you, 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 you held me together. I don't know how you did it, but you, you held me together. And you and you gave me hope. That's the most beautiful thing I get here. You get you gave me hope. You said it was going to be okay. You said, you said just keep coming, Sharon. A day at a time, one day at a time, things will start to get better. Like I said, I had no idea how I was going to salvage any kind of a life. I'd wasted all of my twenties, well, my teens and my twenties, just being off my head. 
So that thing called character building, that thing called personal development, that thing called healthy relationships, that thing called being financially self-supporting, that thing, you know, all of that stuff had been completely neglected. I mean, I pretended to do some of those things. And you know, on the outside, it looked like I was having relationships and I looked like I was having a social life and it looked like I was, you know, I could manage money and it looked like I was working. But I was, it was all a front. It was just a front. And so it took me a long time, a long time to defrost and to start to sort of get some sense of who I really was. And it was by your example by your testimony, by you telling me how it was for you, by you sharing your truth, your honest truth about how you felt and how you were managing to live life, life on life's terms, one day at a time, that gave me the courage and the hope to share honestly and to carry on just putting one foot in front of the other. I was, I wasn't, I was too ill for a long time. I was too ill to work. And thank God, you know, thank God, I thank you. My father was alcoholic. I grew up in a mental, in a mental home. I didn't make me an alcoholic, but I thank my dad. He was a Scotsman um, and he, and why, why it was because of his, because of his heritage and because of his lineage that, you know, I was born, you'll hear from my accent. I was born in Cape Town. I was born in South Africa. I grew up in South Africa, but I came to England at 21. So, I, you know, I spent most of my adult life in, in the UK and that was only because my father that was only only be I could do that only because my father was British so I could because I by birth I was then I was then able to have, get British citizenship well I was born with it because of my father's nationality so that was very lucky very lucky and um you know, I started working in this country in 1991 and I was, I was off my head by then. And it wasn't until nine years later that I came into AA. But in those nine years, you know, I did. I paid national insurance. I, I you know, I was a registered taxpayer in this country and, you know, all of the, So when it when it came to it, thank God, you know, you you don't know how lucky you are in, in England to have a welfare system like ours. It is incredible. And people complain and it's you've got to jump through all these hoops and, you know, it's not enough money. And I can tell you right now, I'd have been street homeless on a cardboard box if it hadn't been for the welfare system in England, the civilized, incredible welfare system that the taxpayer in this country subsidized. So that people who are poorly, people who need some help can get it when they need it. And I got it. I got it. I qualified. And I'm just, well, be forever grateful for this incredible system because I was too sick to work, too sick. Don't let me ever forget just how poorly I was. People in these rooms who knew me, who met me in my first few years said they, they didn't think I would, they didn't think I would survive. Being sober having to face the, the wreckage of my past, having to not only face the wreckage of my drinking, but the wreckage of my, the results of growing up in the sort of home I grew up in is a massive, massive responsibility. But you know what? I hadn't, haven't had to do a second of it on my own. And it's the most incredible thing. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. There are women and men in this fellowship. If you've got anything that you're thinking, oh my God, what I've experienced in my life is, is just so different. Trust me, there'll be somebody here that's been where you have and has got through what you've been through and has stayed sober. That's been my experience. That has been my experience. 
So I'm not afraid. Bring it on. I say, bring let life just bring it on because I've got a design for living here that works. So once I had that daily plan I was telling you about, the prayer, the readings, the quiet time, the reflection, the gratitude list, the outreach calls, the home group, the service, the calling my sponsor on time. She then said, when you go to bed at night, get on your knees again. I had no problem with getting on my knees. I was afraid at first that the neighbors across the road could see, so I'd always make sure the curtains were properly closed. <laughs> like they would, you know, nobody's, oh my God, I was so, I was not well. Anyway, but I would get on my, get to the foot of my, my mattress on the floor in this black dark bedsit. And I just say, God, thank you for keeping me sober today. It was an absolute miracle that I wasn't scoring, that I wasn't out on the lash, that I wasn't, you know, unbelievable. The obsession to drink was removed straight out of me. That's my experience. I can't tell you any other story other than that's, that's, that's what happened to me. And, um, and as and she got me to do those things. And as I became, she said, as I started to make that at my daily routine, I started to feel better. I mean, I was I was poorly, but I started to get some hope. I started to have a sense of sort of purpose. Having service gave me a purpose, made me feel useful. You know, as I said, I was socially awkward. I didn't think I fitted in. I've always felt like an outsider. I always felt like I, I, I um, you know, I was. Yeah, you all you all had some sort of a script to life that I didn't get. That was always how I felt. I don't feel like that anymore. That's the wonderful thing about AA. If you keep coming and you keep get keep stay involved, stay in the middle, you know, hang out with people who are involved and in the middle, stay with you know, stay in the middle, you get all these things. You know, I've recovered from a hopeless state of mind and body. It tells us in the book. I haven't, I haven't recovered. I'm not finished. I have alcoholism. Alcoholism is an illness that centers in my mind. It is, it is the sober condition. You think, oh, why are you still coming to AA if you're 22 years sober? Like, what's the point? Surely you can, you know, you can control your drinking. The alcohol was just a symptom. And they say, if you want to know why you drank, get sober. And that's where the 12 steps come in. That is this wonderful, which is part of our design for living 12 step program. And it comes with a sponsor. And, uh, and, you know, and we go through the big book together, line by line, page by page, leaving nothing out, starting at the beginning, finishing at the end. And I've been through that book over and over and over again with my sponsor, with my sponsees. It is the most incredible way of life. Absolutely amazing. So, you know, step one for me was it wasn't it wasn't difficult. As I said, as, as soon as I walked into my first meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous and I saw those steps on the wall and I read, we admitted we were powerless, that our lives had become unmanageable. I thought, yes, yes. How many times had I tried to control my using and nothing, nothing worked. Unmanageability, God, I've described how unmanageable things were. Chaos, chaos, despite my best intentions. My sponsor for step one, she got me to write. She said, I want you to write down five examples of how alcohol affected your relationship with your family. I want you to write five examples 
of how taking a drink affected your ability to have healthy relationships. I want you to write down five examples of how alcohol affected your education. Five examples of how taking a drink affected your ability to develop a career. Five examples of how drinking affected your ability to be financially self-supporting. And I want five examples of how drinking alcohol affected your ability to have a healthy romantic relationship. Can you imagine, by the time I got to the end of that list, I had no doubt, there was no, the evidence was there in black and white of just how powerless I was over alcohol. She said, when your intent, I want you to write, and write, when your intention to do one thing ended up being something completely different as a result of taking a drink. I mean, I knew the moment I came here, I, I was done. Like I said, I wasn't debating whether I was or wasn't. Was I powerless? Wasn't I powerless? Could I control it? Maybe I could. It was all, it was over. It was over. I was surrendered by the time I got here. Not everybody is, and that's their journey. You know, people find their way in their own time, but I was surrendered 100% by the time I, came, I got here. And I would have, like I said, I'd have done anything. Coming to believe that a power greater than me could restore me to sanity, I absolutely believe because I listened to you tell me what it was like, what happened and what your lives were like now as a result of not taking a drink a day at a time and working this program, working this, applying this, these, this, these principles to your life. And I wanted what you had. Your testimony was what was restoring me to sanity. You were my higher power. Even though I had a higher power, guardian angel, what I believed in, it was something magical that I saw in the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous. And I've, and I've seen, and, and this has been my own spiritual experience. Not everybody has it. I don't know. Everybody has their own experience. Mine is a mixture of an educational, uh, educational experience over time. It's grown and evolved and changed. But I also had some incredible and continue to. I can see something radiating in an AA meeting faced, you know, in, a, in the company of addicts, talking al alcoholics, talking about their surrender, talking about what they do to stay sober, talking about the joys of recovery. There is a, there is a light in that space. There is a, a magnetism and an, an energy that is, that is so attractive and so magical. I want to hold my breath when it's happening. It's like the, it's like there's a, there's a, a an out-of-worldly light on. There's an energy in that space. So if you've got face-to-face -face meetings where you go, that doesn't mean I can't connect with your magnetic field through this medium. I can, but it, it's more subtle. Whereas in a face-to-face, skin-to-skin, in each other's company, it is it is where it is the most incredible feeling. And for those of you who are new to AA or just coming in the first time, Zoom is your road in, fantastic. But if you've got a local meeting near to that's face to face, go, go. I encourage you. That's where it's that's where the that's where it's uh, it's a wonderful thing. Get involved. Get involved in your local meetings. Step three, you know, made a decision to turn my will and my life over to the care, to the care of a power greater than myself. I had no idea what that meant, you know, what care, what care felt like, what care looked like. I didn't grow up with care. I didn't see it modeled in my home. 
I didn't really understand what it meant. People say, oh, you know, take care of yourself. Have a, have a self-care day. I thought self-care was bubble baths and candles. I had no idea what it meant to, to, to trust that something outside of myself could, to, could take care of me. And it, and it was my home group and it was other members of AA. I turned my will and my life over to you. I made a decision to get on with the rest of the program. That's all step three is. It's just a decision to get on with the rest of the program. It's not an intellectual exercise. And if you don't believe in God, believe in love. You know, replace the word God for love. I made a decision to turn my will and my life over to the care of love. Also, I didn't understand what love meant either, but it's, you know, it was easier to sort of, you know, it can be easier to get a handle on. Find something that works for you, a language that works for you. I was in a room full of people who was broken, who were dying, who were terrified and who couldn't stop drinking. And they were telling me that there's a result of coming here and doing this and following this way of life, that they were happy, that they had lives that they enjoyed, that they had jobs that they enjoyed, that they were self-supporting again, that they had their children back in their life, that they had relationships that had been restored. Now, if that isn't a power greater than me, I don't know what is, you know, so make your home group your higher power if you need to. Don't get hung up on the God word. It's not a religious program, AA. It's a spiritual program, but everybody has their, thank God it is of our own understanding. Thank, thank love it is of our own understanding. Made a searching and thorough moral inventory of myself. Oh, my goodness. Don't get hung up on that. People make a big deal about an inventory. Just write down what happened and how you felt. And there's eight feelings that you can, you just, you just, you know, was I angry? Was I sad? Was I ashamed? Was I numb? Was I excited? Did I feel pain? Just, just keep it very simple. I went to school. I got shamed for peeing my pants. I'm resentful at that teacher for shaming me in front of everybody else. I felt afraid. I felt numb. I felt sad. That's my timer. Just resetting it. Gosh, I had no idea. I'd be. I'd, <laughs> that was 40 minutes. So I'm just going to finish. I'm going to wrap it up. I'm on step four <laughs> anyway. But you get the picture. Don't hang up. Don't hang around. Just tell somebody. Don't be afraid. It's not a moral. It's not a big exercise in sort of psychoanalysis. It's just what happened, how you felt, and what the defects of character were. And if you don't know what a defect of character is, ask a sponsor. Ask somebody in AA, and they'll give you our little list. There's a list of 14 that are really easy. Tolerance, impatience, greed, gluttony, envy, jealousy, selfishness, self-centeredness, self-seeking, dishonesty, I, uh, you know, lust. Sorry. Uh, Sharon, you've got <laughs> yes. up to six minutes, just so you know. You've got how many? You can, six. You've got up to sixty minutes, so you can go on for another twenty minutes. It's, it's, it's entirely up to you. Oh, oh, well, I'll just, I'll see if I can get through the steps so people can, so, yeah, so I didn't want to leave anybody who's brand new thinking, what, what, she only got to step, step five. Oh, I haven't got to step, step, step four. Just, um, yeah, get somebody that you can, you don't have to share your inventory with everybody. An inventory is a list of resentments, a list of your fears. Just, I am afraid of the dark. I'm afraid of spiders. You know, I'm afraid of deep water. Whatever your fears are, just write them down. And then look at your 
you know, look at your sex conduct. Your and and you don't need to share your sexual inventory with with every anybody. You can go to a doctor or a you know a therapist or a priest or whatever feels comfortable. Um, I had to do an an inventory of conduct, so not just sexual conduct, but my where was I selfish, self centered, self seeking, resentful, and dishonest? You know how did I treat people? And I was a manipulative, dishonest head case. Anyway, so I had to write this stuff out and I had to look at also the harms I caused. And when I did, I did a harms list in my step four, which made really good material for my step eight. So once I'd finished writing all this wonderful stuff down and I, and I didn't take, you know, years and years, I just did what was there. You know, you can't, if it's not at the surface and easy for you to remember, don't worry about it. You know, more will be revealed. You can share other stuff that you remember later on, but get the, get the shit out of the way as quickly as you can, you know, and if you need professional help to support you, give you some sort of a background, I encourage it. I didn't, I didn't get professional help until I was 10 years sober and I wish I hadn't white knuckled it for that long you know I needed I should have had medical and professional help much sooner but I thought I'll just I'll just persevere and I'll pray harder I'll do more inventory I'll meditate for longer and um, I didn't realize I have a, I had a chemical imbalance in my brain that's a, a whole nother story and I but I got and I got help for that because I was sober in AA and because I were you know I've been working this program you get real clarity here. There's nowhere to hide. That's the responsibility of sobriety. <laughs> you can't get away with anything if you're honest. Um, uh, yeah, so sharing this with another human being, it says we admitted to God, to ourselves and another human being the exact nature of our wrongs. And um, oh, the woman that I that I had chosen as my sponsor. Well, he chose me. Actually. Well, we sort of she chose me, really. She, you know, I was chatting to her and I had a pen and paper and she and I was finding it very hard to find the words to say, will you will you will you sponsor me? Will you help me? She and she said, are you trying to ask me to sponsor you? I was so relieved. I was like, yay. Yes, please. Anyway, and the night before I went to read my step five to her, which was, you know, share my step four with her, which is the process of step five. I got a phone call from a member 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 of the fellowship. And she said to me, she said, anything that you are the most afraid to tell your sponsor, if you've got anything that you are, you are too afraid to tell her, make that the first thing you tell her. And who did that? She didn't know I was going to see my sponsor the following day. She just called to do an outreach. And that's why outreach is so powerful make your calls it's where we're, it's our meeting after the meeting anyway and uh and uh, i was terrified because i had these deep dark secrets that i thought i'd never tell anybody and let alone when i remember when i wrote it down on a piece of paper just giving it just putting it on a writing words to describe what had happened was just i had to make i don't know how many outreach calls during that process just to stay present and to trust in the process it was very painful Anyway, and I thought, how am I ever going to tell her this stuff? I was so ashamed. And I walked in, I knocked on her door and she welcomed, she opened the door and she was very flamboyant and very, you know, very effervescent. She was just one of these women who you just, 
I just thought, oh my God, how would ever be like her? She was just so, she was happy. She's graceful. She was full of gratitude. She had a beautiful home. She's creative. She always smelled so beautiful and she had lovely clothes and, and, uh, and she welcomed me in and it was a sort of, she handed me a six pack of Diet Cokes and a packet of uh, Marlboro Lights and I, I was in heaven. And, uh, <laughs> and we sat down and, uh, and, and I just blurted it. I just said, I'm, t- I'm terrified. And this, I just need to, I just don't know how I'm going to describe this to you, but I just need to tell you. And she just said, oh, my love, she said, she listened to me and she just hugged me and she said, my goodness, she said, I, and she told me her story, you know, part of her story. And it was like, it was like what I believe to have been this biggest mountain, this horrendous, gnarled, diseased, dark, evil place in one couple of minutes was just dissolved into a pile of ash, right-sized. I felt like a human being again. She made me, she gave me back my dignity. She said it was okay. I was a child. I should never, you know, I should never have had to experience any of that. And I wasn't a bad person and I wasn't evil. Priceless. You can't buy that stuff. I mean, this is the most amazing way of life. Anyway, and I left that woman's flat like I, 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 I walked out of out. It talks about it in this in the big literature. It says we walked hand in hand on this broad highway, you know, in the presence of the spirit of the universe, you know. And I, you know, and I was I was waiting for this big flash of light, and it didn't come. And uh, and because what I was left with was this realization of just the extent of my shortcomings, my defects of character. It was all there in black and white. Yes, I told and admitted to God, to myself and another human being, the exact nature of my wrongs. And now I had to get down to some real work. And the real work began in what we describe here as building of, of developing what we call humility. And that was to understand that I'm as powerless over my defects of character as I am over my over alcohol. And that and the and this illness is progressive. And I've got to surrender each day. I have a daily reprieve where I ask higher power. I say the step three prayer, I say the step seven prayer. God, I offer myself to thee. I give all of myself to you, the good and the bad. And I humbly pray that you remove every single defect of character that stands in the way of my usefulness to you and to my fellows. God grant me whatever or love grant me whatever strength I need to go into this day and do your bidding. Grant me whatever strength I need to go into this day and to be useful to somebody else, to be useful. That's my only hope, my only hope of survival. My primary purpose, it tells us in the AA preamble, my primary purpose is to stay sober and to help another alcoholic to achieve sobriety. Everything else in my life is a bonus. If all I did was stay sober, go to meetings, help newcomers, make tea, that's all I have to do. And I pray I stay the step seven prayer. And so I, in step six, she kept me in step six for a little while. And boy, oh boy, if I ever needed, if I ever wanted to experience my defects of character in the pure light of day, <laughs> don't know if any of you have identified, any of you have experienced it. I sort of, it was like everywhere I turned, there was, a, there was, there I was faced with myself. 
my intolerance, my judgmentalism, my criticism, my cynicism, my, criti my criticism, my, my ability to be manipulative and indifferent and aloof and arrogant. And it was just, I was riddled. It was so painful, step six, so painful, because I just saw my character in the pure light of day and how much work I had to do, how much work I had to do. But the beauty here is it was just like I couldn't get sober on my own. I couldn't think my way out of my defects of character on my own. I couldn't manage better on my own. I needed to tell you the truth of what was going on. And then that's where the alchemy happens. That's where the healing happens. That's where we begin to grow, is if I tell you the truth. What's actually going on? Where have I been dishonest? Where am I, where, what am I afraid of? Where am I not asking for help? Where am I not admitting that I don't know something, pretending to know when I don't? Awful defect of character keeps me so locked down. I don't do that anymore because I've learned by your example, you know, how to be honest and how to ask for help. And um, yeah, so six and seven are really are very close. I had to get the willingness and the humility in six to, to surrender and to say that prayer, to surrender and ask God to help me to remove those defects of character so that I can be useful. And they haven't been plucked out of me completely. You know, it's a daily reprieve. I, I'm a work in progress. I, I, still get, I, can, I still have my character defects. They haven't all been removed, but I, ha I can be useful today. And so the prayer is being answered. And then in step eight, make a list of all people you have harmed and become willing to make amends to them all. Ex you know, I don't have the exact step eight in front of me, the reading, but yeah, make, make, made a list of all, all persons we had harmed and became willing to make amends to them all. And the way that I cultivated willingness was my sponsor got me to do a column, a three column sheet and in, and. And at the top of the first column, she said, write the person's name you've harmed. And in my sexual conduct, in my step four, and in my harms list, there, were all, there, were, there was all the names there. I didn't have to think very hard. I just could go back to that list and just plonk them in my step eight, the names of all the people that I had, that I had stolen from, that I had lied to, that I had insulted, that I had criticized that I had been violent, I had, I had, did I say assaulted? <laughs> um, you know, I had to write all of that down. Harm is where something has been damaged. If you've stolen somebody's property or broken somebody's, damaged somebody's property, or you've, or you've defamed their character, or you've, you've, you've physically, you've hurt their physical being, you know, I had to learn what a harm was. And uh, down went these people's names. And then in the second column, she said, write harms done. Just in a couple of sentences, don't write a long life story again. You just write the harm you caused. You know, I smashed your car and pretended it wasn't me. I, you know, punched you in the face, told you what a useless piece of shit you were when, you, you know, just horrendous, the way, the horrendous, the way I behaved. And, uh, and, uh, and she said, be specific about the harm you caused, not just, oh, I, you know, I insulted him. Say what you actually said. 
And boy, oh boy, by the time I got to the end of the second column, you know, she then said, top of the third column, same piece of paper, you write, how would you feel if the same harm was done to you? And she said, I don't want you just to write pissed off or disappointed or sad. I want you to get really deep down into the root causes and conditions. How would you feel if the same harm was done to you? Abused, neglected, abandoned, threatened. And again, by the time I got to the end of that column, I had the willingness to go to any lengths to correct my harms in step nine. And so I didn't get involved in a conversation in step eight about what my step nines were going to look like. I only got to, I only got, when I got to read my step eight list to my sponsor and we went through each of those names and the harm I caused and how I would feel if the same harm was done to me. She then would say what the amend would be, whether it was a letter, whether it was a phone call, whether it was a, you know, whatever, she would then, she instructed me of, of and you know, what I thought, I thought I'd have to go around making thousands of fucking amends, saying sorry to everybody I'd ever come across with all my shit storm of behaviors. Actually, I ended up with, with not a huge long list. So that's why it's really important you don't make any decisions about the amends you're going to make by yourself. You really, it's really important, you know, get your sponsor's help. And if your sponsor doesn't know the best course of action, get somebody else with some time, ask them with experience, you know, hopefully your sponsor will have the grace to say, I don't know. Let me ask up the line, go up the line. That's why we're, we're a, we're a link. We're a link, a golden chain of experience. My sponsor, 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 sponsor. You know, I'm on the receiving end of over 140 years of back-to-back -back sobriety. Anyway, and so, and so, and the amends process has taken time, although I did get have to get down to the direct amends directly, not messing about, not years and years of procrastination. I had to write to the bank, phone the bank, say, hello, remember me? I borrowed over 10 grand. I have fucked off and now I'm back. I'm very ill. I'm very ill. I'm, I'm not working. I'm signing on. I have no idea how I'm going to pay this money back, but I wanted, I wanted you to know I'm an alcoholic in recovery. Uh, you know, I haven't, and I, the, the responses I've had and the people that have said how they're going to help me has just been incredible. And so it, I'm here to say there's nothing on my amends list that, uh, that hasn't had the most incredible um, outcome. And uh, a lot of my amends have been living amends. And, uh, you know, just by being sober and living this way of life, living this design for living, that I, I, um, I don't treat the people I love the way I used to when I was in the madness. And step 10, 11, and 12 are what they call the maintenance steps. So you get to step 10, and I've got to then apply the principles of the first nine steps on a daily basis. And I do that. With, you know, I do that because my, the quality of my sobriety depends on me taking regular inventory. Continue to take inventory. 
So I meet with my sponsor once a week and I take her my step tens and I tell her the truth about my thinking and my behavior. And, uh, and she tells me whether, you know, we talk about whether I've caused any harm, do I own amends? I mean, quite, quite often, if I've, if, I've, if I've behaved badly, I make an amends right there and then in that moment. God, I'm really sorry. I just spoke to you in a terrible way. I, I'm really sorry. You didn't deserve to be spoken like that. I, I apologize. Please, you know, tell me what I, what I can do to set things right. And I've got the humility to do that today because my sobriety depends on it. You know, I didn't get sober to be miserable and to be in conflict with people. And step 11, saw through prayer and meditation to improve our conscious contact with love, with God, with whatever you want to call it, as we understood it. Praying only for the knowledge of God's will for me and the power to carry that out. I love that step. It's my, it's one, it's my favorite step. It works. It just works. And my idea of meditation, when I first came into AA, as I said, I couldn't sit still for more than three minutes. Three minutes was a long time. You know, it's evolved and it tells us in our literature, it encourages you to go to any length, seek out those who've got more experience than you. The libraries are full of books and the, the, the Internet is full of, um, you know, information about various spiritual practices and ways to meditate. And there's so many different podcasts and apps. And oh, my God, the resources we have available to us today are second to none. And so my step 11 has evolved over the years and I've been to retreats and I've practiced different types of mantras and different prayers and different meditations and different, just all wonderful, 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 wonderful. And I would no sooner do without prayer and meditation today than I would do without air and water. My mental health depends on it. My mind needs cleaning. You know how you clean your house and you wash all your washing and you keep look out or look after your environment. If you don't take the same care, if I don't take the same care of my mind, I'm in trouble. I'm in trouble. My mind needs cleaning and meditation is a way to clean the mind. And uh, and then just not I mean, finally, but it's the most incredible step because I get to keep what I've got by giving it away. Step 12 is having had a spiritual awakening as the result of these steps. We try to carry this message to the alcoholic who's to, you know, and to practice these principles in all our affairs. And I do that. I'm as involved in service today as I was when I first got sober. And I sponsor and I'm sponsored and I'm, you know, I'm involved at intergroup. And if you're interested in AA service structure, it's the most incredible way of just, it's given me skills. It's given me confidence. It's given me a way of going back into the world. AA's way of life is a way of, it's a best training for any job you could ever wish for. Get involved, do treasury, do literature, get involved. Do GSR, go and represent your group at intergroup. Go down the triangle. AA's groups are all at the top. We're at the top of the triangle. It's an upside down triangle. AA's groups are at the top, members are at the top, then your intergroup, then your region, then the world, then the, uh, the general service office and conference. So get involved. It's, a, it's like I said, it's the best training for work skills you could ever wish for. It just is. I'm financially self-supporting. I have two careers that I'd never, ever, ever have imagined possible. And that's all because I come here. I got married in sobriety. My husband's never known me drunk. 
AA is at the center of our, of our home. My husband's been sober for a lot longer than me. And, um, and we have a beautiful life. People coming and going in our home all the time. We don't have children. A, alcoholism robbed me of, you know, the ability to have children. My husband didn't have any children. So we have, we have, but we have a wonderful extended family in AA. We have a rich, full, incredible life. And it takes, and I'll finish here, just, it takes work. It's, it's not something that I just sort of, I haven't arrived anywhere. Um, I don't, I haven't sort of, I'm not cured. I, my, as I said, the quality of my sobriety is contingent on the maintenance of my spiritual condition. And my spiritual condition isn't about me levitating and meditating without a single thought in my head. My, my spiritual condition is dependent on how I treat you, how I treat others. My, my spiritual condition comes from being of service. And that's, that's it. Anyway, I'm going <laughs> to, I'm going to end there. I had no idea. I, I have so much to say. I'm, I'm looking forward to hearing from you. So I'm going to wrap it up. Thanks. Thanks for letting me share.